This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. It is my honor today to welcome Attorney General Bill Barr to the podcast. His new book, One Damn Thing After Another, is out now. And if you're interested in his relationship with President Trump, with the results of the 2020 election, you will certainly find his take on all of that in these pages. But there's a lot more to Bill Barr than just those two years in the Trump administration. From his earliest days, he takes us through high school, through college, working for the CIA, sitting next to then director of the CIA, George H.W. Bush, during uh, Senate and House committee hearings on the CIA in the 70s, into the Reagan administration, then into the George H.W. Bush administration as attorney general. Well, he dealt with everything from Pan Am Flight 103 to the invasion of Panama to the Gulf War, savings and loan crisis, Iran-Contra, LA riots, and the Talladega prison hostage situation. He then went into private practice and then came back to serve in the Trump administration for two years as attorney general. And I want to read something here about the title. So one damn thing after another, where does that come from? I'm going to read this right here to kick things off. For 40 years, successive attorneys general have heard the story. After President Ronald Reagan nominated him in 1980 to serve as attorney general of the United States, William French Smith, preparing for his new duties, talked to Ed Levi, who four years earlier had served as Attorney General under President Gerald Ford, and before that had been Dean of the University of Chicago Law School and then President of that university. With his pipe smoking, bow ties, and intellectual demeanor, Levi seemed a quintessential academic. When Smith asked Levi to describe the job of Attorney General, he was expecting him to launch in a philosophical discourse about the Founding Fathers, the rule of law, and the principles of democracy. Levi, taking a leisurely puff of his pipe, paused a moment and said, it's just one damn thing after another. Attorney General Bill Barr. Yeah, I want to be so uh, respectful of your time because I know you have so much going on, and I know you could. I could talk to you for days on end. Um, and uh, but uh, but I want to. I want everyone to read this. So I'm gonna. I, I, I assume that you have talked about uh, a few things ad nauseum, uh, particularly the, <laughs> the election and President Trump and those things. Uh, so I'd like to talk to you about some of the other things maybe that you haven't been uh, asked about, but are, are in this book right here. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Wonderful. And I, I want everyone to read this book too. As soon as I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to give it to my daughter. She's 16. Um, I mean, there's so many touch points with history um, and and so many so much appreciation in here for the freedoms, options, and opportunities that we have today in this country because of those who came before us. And, uh, and that really stood out to me. Um, but I wanted to start asking you about your father, because you mentioned that he worked for the OSS, so the Office of Strategic Services, the uh, yeah. predecessor to the CIA. Uh, and did he ever talk to you about that growing up? Or uh, what was, uh, did you research on later on in life about what he did during that time frame? Yeah, he, um, he actually started off as an interpreter. He knew how to speak Italian and German. And so they initially, uh, the army had him initially uh, debriefing uh, prisoners of war. We had big prison camps here in the United States. I remember he told me about one in Utah where he was, uh, uh, you know, questioning uh, Italian prisoners and German prisoners. 
Um, and then uh, he went into the OSS and was sent over to to Germany, uh, where we uh, where the OSS went up with the front line to try to capture uh, German scientists and seize scientific files before the Russians did. So that's that's what he did. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I wonder. Uh, do you ever ask him about what were in, what was in those files? And, uh, and <laughs> no, no, oh. but he had a lot of respect for the German rocket scientists, who we ended up getting back to the United States, uh, and for the job that they did, you know, get, giving us a jump on our, our rocket program. But so that that's what initially got me interested in the whole business of foreign affairs and intel, intelligence business. You know, I read about Wild Bill Donovan and the OSS and. Um, and the British uh, intelligence. And so that was my career goal to go into intelligence. I love that. Everyone else was studying Russian. Everyone else was studying Russian at the time. And I said, well, the other enemy down the road is going to be China. So I started studying Chinese very early on in the late 60s. Yeah. No, I love that. I love when you talk about that, knowing what you wanted to do and having that high school counselor ask you what you want to do. And you said, I want to be director of the CIA. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably the only person that told, uh, told them that uh, during that timeframe. So specific. Um, But I also want to ask you about something else. This is, uh, there's so many things in this book that are, I mean, they're they're so fascinating to me. And, and uh, uh, because I grew up in the eighties, those are my formative years. So I have these touch points with Iran Contra and all these things that you talk about in here. But uh, when you were a kid, I found this fascinating. Uh, So you were anemic as a child. And they prescribed something to you that you had to drink. <laughs> what did they prescribe to you? Well, I passed out on the way to kindergarten and they found out I was anemic. And, and uh, at the hospital, they th- some of the doctors thought they saw a growth by my heart and they wanted to operate. So my, my grandmother came down from Hartford. She was Irish born um, and uh, with, a, with sort of a family priest uh, who was also from Ireland. And they looked over the situation and they said, no, no operation. What he needs is a glass of Guinness's stout every day. When I was five years old or six years old, and until I was 12 or 13 years old, I would have a, a glass of Guinness's every day. The refrigerator always had a six pack of uh, the bottles of Guinness in there, much to my brother's envy. You know, they, uh, I had three brothers and, I was the only one who got the Guinness's stout. That's fantastic. I I couldn't believe that when I saw that. I said, no way. And and I've had trouble keeping weight off ever since. (laughs) Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. And then you also say you inherited that uh, that Celtic gloom from your mother. Um, What what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's it's, uh, always worried about what's going to... what could go wrong and trying to make provision for it and, you know, sort of expect the worst to happen and what will you do when it happens and always looking at uh, not necessarily uh, giving counsel to your fears and and not taking risk, but always trying to think through uh, what the downsides are and how you will deal with them if they, they come about. So, you know, you can have uh, joy at some uh, victory or or success for a little bit of time, but then you usually turn your attention to the next challenge and, and what can go wrong. Yes, it, and, uh, 
wisdom. I suppose that was a survival strategy of, of some of my ancestors. <laughs> I think you're right. I believe you're right. I think we share some of those, uh, yeah, that, that same heritage. Uh, and I love the story of your mom also running downstairs after some older kids that, uh, and I remember at the age that you are, how big 18, yeah. 16, 17, 18 year old kids look uh, yeah. at that age from, uh, came down, they stole some gloves and hats and your yeah. mom comes down. I mean, she, and she takes care of that. Yeah, so we lived in a you know a big apartment building. I think we lived, we lived on the tenth floor, and we were in, my brother and I were in the lobby, and I was six or seven years old, and and my brother was ten or eleven, and we were held up uh, in the lobby, and uh, I pushed the button, and I called out to my mother. We were being held up, and next thing I know, the elevator door opened. She tears out, still wearing her apron. She had been at the sink. This was winter time. She went charging out and said, which way did they go? And I pointed, <laughs> and she just took after them and caught one of them. They ran, you know, they, they ran and she caught one and dragged them to the police. But she, my mother was tough. She was, uh, she was a very pragmatic, tough person. Yeah. Do you think that impacted you uh, throughout the rest of your life and later in life yeah. when uh, you took uh, with all that you did, especially in the nineties uh, dealing with uh, violent crime? Yeah, I think it did. You know, so I mean, you know, my father was a little bit more of the uh, professorial type, a little bit more uh, conceptual, and my mother was the one who always had a plan. And uh, so I think I think I sort of uh, inherited a lot of that from her in terms of if, trying to figure out how to get the job done and getting it done as quickly as as I could. And uh, you know, she also had very strong uh, oral principles and, and always, uh, you know, insisted on, on us uh, keeping the straight and narrow. And with four boys in a small New York apartment, you know, they meted out discipline swiftly. <laughs> I, out of necessity. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I love, I mean, it's such a great American success story, your whole family history and everything that gets woven into this book. I, I mean, I, I loved it. Um, and I wish every American would read this, not just for the American success story, but for everything else that you talk about in such a, a logical, pragmatic way. Um, but also just, um, uh, you know, rooted in this appreciation uh, for the country and everything that it has given all of us here. Um, and also you talk about some of these things. Like I went to Catholic school as a, as a child and I remember Sister Veronica to this day, second grade, very, very impactful. And you talk about Sister Lucinda. Lucinda. Yeah. yeah. And you reconnect later. So I had her for two grades and she, you know, she was just a wonderful woman and very encouraging and always encouraged me to, to lead and, and have self-confidence. And I just really liked her having her as a teacher. And later in life, when I was inviting some of my teachers to events, like the first time I was attorney general, I didn't know how to get in touch with her. She had gone back to the mother house somewhere in the Midwest. <laughs> I had no idea where she was. And then later on in life, I think it was 2009, uh, Cardinal Egan, said, oh, you went to Corpus Christi. I was taught by the Cincinnati Dominicans too. And I said, well, what? And, and he said, yeah, there's Cincinnati, Wisconsin. So I got online and I found her. Uh, I called the, I sent an email and they came back to me and said, yes, she's alive. She's 93 years old here. So I went out and visited her uh, twice in, in the next couple of years. Amazing. So Amazing. She was, uh, she was a very nice woman. I'm glad I had the chance to, you know, tell her uh, you know, how much she meant to me in my life and what a great job she did as a teacher before yeah. she died. 
No, I loved that you yeah. uh, that you did that, and for people reading that, especially for people in the, in education, I think it's I mean it's so inspirational because they do. I mean they do make an impact on us, good <laughs> good bad and otherwise. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I've also found it interesting. There was you you had another influence in your life, a mentor, uh, not a parent, and uh, you know throughout history, mentors who aren't parents play an Im- important role. And uh, this was Pipe Major John C. McKenzie, and he fought yeah. at Gallipoli. Yes. I mean, incredible. And so you, as a, as a kid, get to hear these stories and you're learning how to play the pipes. And uh, right. what was that like? Well, starting at eight years old, I'd sit up in his apartment. And when I was catching my breath, you know, he, he would, my father, who took me to my lessons, we'd encourage him to tell us stories and he'd tell us all about World War I. And his unit was the first territorial unit to, to, uh, be deployed in, in combat over in, in the Middle East in Gallipoli. And he's, he fought through uh, Gallipoli, Palestine, where, where we took Jerusalem, uh, Egypt, and then they shipped him to France. And he fought for the last year of the war in France. And uh, he, he would talk about going over the top. Those were the early days when they put the pipers up on the parapet uh, when the charge started. And they lost so many pipers in Gallipoli that they had to combine all the, the remaining bagpipers in one band. They had lost so many. And only two, two pipers of, the, of his band that went over came home. So um, they took high casualties. But, uh, you know, for a little boy eight years old, hearing those stories was, was just amazing. And in retrospect, I wish we had better recording devices. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine if we had a podcast and could have talked to him and heard those stories for hours and captured them for future generations. And, right. uh, but I'm glad that you kept his memory alive yeah. in this, in this book right here. Yes. Um, that was, that was fascinating. And then you end up at Columbia and you're in a very volatile time in our nation's history, of course. And in 1968, there are these student riots and, and you're out there. There's actually a photo of you in the book, uh, right. a young Bill Barr standing right there, uh, <laughs> Vanguard right there. And so what was that like to be, uh, involved in that, that, uh, that tumultuous time? Well, I mean, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say it was somewhat exciting. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, uh, the it got down to the sort of the rule of the street there because uh, the radicals had taken over the building and were bullying people. I remember when I went to the library to get a book I needed for my finals, you know, being pushed and so forth. So uh, most of the students in those days, this was in 68, most of the students in those days disagreed with the demonstrators taking over the buildings and so forth. And so we set up this group called the Majority Coalition and it was a lot of fraternities and the athletic teams and a lot of individuals who just disagreed with it. And uh, we decided that we were going to force the issue and we surrounded the building and wouldn't let any food in or anyone go come or go. And that a big fight broke out. And, and that's what forced the administration to bring the police on campus. So a lot of people were saying later, oh, this is terrible. Police came on and cleared the campus, but we were satisfied uh, with the result. Yeah, I mean, and you're studying China at this point. You're still interested in China, and you do a CIA internship at uh, at some point here. And you're still you're still focused yeah. on becoming that director of the the CIA at uh, at some point, right? Yeah, and that's where my again my mother came in because when I went to CIA, she said, you know, you should think about going to law school. Maybe go at night. Uh, just get another arrow in your quiver, she said. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, my draft number was 319. So I knew I wasn't going to be going, uh, be drafted. And so I wanted to go into the agency, but I also took my mother's advice and went to law school at night. And uh, lo and behold, because of all the investigations of the CIA, they brought me up to the seventh floor to work with some of the committees, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, interfacing with the committees and who shows up as the director, but George H.W. Bush. And he comes from China. He's our ambassador to China. So I started uh, a relationship with him at that point. I used to go up to the hill with him when he was testifying. That part was, was fascinating to me. Um, because I, I weave some of the the the, the Pike Committee and the, the church hearings into some of my my fiction, but uh, I also love what your dad tells you at that point. So you have your mom telling you one thing, and then your your dad tells you he says, "Do what you like doing because that's what you'll do best." Right. I love that advice. I mean, I wish uh, more people would follow that advice. I think they listen right. to their their callings, um, right? As uh, as you did uh, mm-hmm. into into the legal profession. But when you're on though, you're sitting there, so you're you're young, very young, and you're sitting there next to the director of the CIA, a future president of the United States, and he's getting grilled by these committees. And at some point he leans back to you and what is it? He says, uh, how the hell do I deal with this one? So you, and and how old are you at this point when you're sitting there? I I think I was 26 or something like that, 26 or 27. But yeah, they were asking him about this program and they wanted to notify everybody whose mail had been covered. Mm -hmm. That is, just looking at the outside, you know, to, from, to make, to see what this was during the cold war. And it was mail coming from Russia and other places like that. And uh, he said, and he leaned back and said, how in the hell do I answer this one? And I gave him a suggested answer and he gave it. So I thought, hmm, it's pretty good. Hey, <laughs> it's not bad. Advice, yeah. yeah. That would, and that would obviously pay off later. Yeah. Um, but uh, something else happens in there. Admiral Stansfield Turner, uh, becomes the director while you are there. And I wanted to ask you about, um, you mentioned it briefly in the book, but his impact on you and then the agency as a whole. Right. Well, I, you know, I learned a lot about leadership, watching the difference between someone like Bush and someone like Stansfield Turner. Bush was only there a year, but they named the building and the campus after mm-hmm. him. He had a tremendous impact uh, as a leader uh, because he, his attitude was, I'm going to trust you until you give me a reason not to. And he gave people a chance and he didn't treat the people at the agency uh, as pariahs or as if they had done something terrible and wrong. And they embraced him and supported him. Stansfield Turner came in and he treated the whole agency as a pariah. He surrounded himself with naval officers who had been with him in the Navy. You had to you know, do things in writing through the naval office. Mm. And he had this idea, which a lot of the left has, which you can conduct intelligence without getting your hands dirty. And everything could be done by gizmos and satellites and interception, you know, communications, mm-hmm. interception and stuff. And you and you didn't really need the covert service. And so he decimated them, hundreds of them. And a lot of them were disgusted and left. And that set us back a great deal, uh, set us up for failures in the future, what he did to the CIA and what the, uh, uh, that was Carter, President mm-hmm. Carter's years. I think they, they hurt our intelligence capabilities. Yeah. And then you find yourself on your way to the Reagan White House. So how did that, right. uh, how did that work out? Was that on your radar at all? Or how did that, uh, how well, did that you know, out? I had, again, you know, I just, someone I met while I was uh, in, in law practice uh, who had been in the 
Ford administration went over to the White House and invited me to join them. As a, as it was sort of a junior staff position. And I was 32 at the time. And I said, you know, uh, I, I still think the experience would be great working in the White House and also getting to see Reagan in action. Mm-hmm. And so I went there uh, for almost two years and then went back to my law firm to make partner at the law firm. But uh, those were great years at the White House. I saw what I think was one of the most effective White Houses uh, I've ever seen operate. Those were the days where Jim Baker was the chief of staff, Ed Meese was keeper of the flame and the counselor on policy, and Mike Beaver was communications guru and how things would be uh, communicated to the public and the message discipline would be enforced and so forth. So uh, I learned a lot about the White House. Obviously, I learned a lot watching uh, President uh, Reagan, tremendous communicator and and a very decent man. Yeah, I'm looking for, I got invited to the, uh, the Reagan library for my third novel to go speak there and, uh, such an honor, but then COVID hit. So it had to be delayed. And then there were still no in-person book tours last year. So I'll, uh, next week I'll be out there for the first time to, uh, uh, to tour and then to give a talk and, and sign books and everything. So I'm, uh, I'm That's so great. excited. So they do excited. a great job. I was just there. Uh, they do a great job. They I'm do a great job. Really looking forward to it. And actually a friend here in, in Park City who took my my author photo, um, he took pictures of Reagan uh, back in the late 80s. And he said he was walking in uh, in Los Angeles. I'm going to tell this story during my, my talk. He's walking with the, with the president and uh, Nancy's ahead with, a, with a, some, a staffer or an assistant or something. And they're getting closer to the house. And Reagan turns and said, excuse me. And he jogs up, passes Nancy and opens the door for her. And uh, I just think that just, that just says so much about, uh, about him yeah. as a man. Um, anyway, that's, that stood out to me. Uh, but it, then you end up going to the, uh, to George Bush, uh, administration. And I love what you say about Dan Quayle in here, because everyone who I've ever met who has had an interaction with, with Dan Quayle or knew him personally, um, has told me that he is just brilliant, intelligent, amazing person. And yeah. he just got raked over the coals by the media. And, uh, in the, in the book, this is, you kind of note that, Hey, this is, uh, this is, uh, almost a foreshadowing of things to come when it talks mm-hmm. about, uh, the media and coming almost a propaganda arm of, of, of one of right. the parties. Um, but, but I really, I've, it was interesting that you made a, made a note of that and how that vice presidential pick went. Um, and, uh, and then what your, your experience was and how the inexperience of Dan Quayle, although he had four years in the house and what eight in the Senate, uh, was highlighted. And then years later, not so much highlighted when we're talking about a future president. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, they, they jumped on him as if he was, he was young and inexperienced. He didn't say anything about Obama, who had virtually no experience, <laughs> um, uh, certainly not as an executive. But Quayle, um, he was he was a he is, you know, an extremely bright guy and good judgment. And uh, he, he made a great contribution. Every time I had a conversation with him about policy, he was well-informed. He had, you know, he was a very prudent guy. And uh, yeah, he got savaged by the media and it's really yeah, too bad. Yeah, and it, that's, that sort of thing continues today, obviously. And then you yeah. highlight a few other things in here. Uh, your deputy attorney general confirmation hearing in April of 89. Uh, and you point out that Joe Biden, and I've seen some of these, these videos, uh, whose view, you say views on law enforcement could almost be termed conservative. 
And when I see some of those videos, they could almost be termed extreme right wing today. And, right. Uh, it, 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 and there's a couple other points uh, in, in the novel or in the book where you uh, where you point that point that out from Joe Biden and how that has just shifted over time. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, I guess when you look at that, is that uh, disheartening to see the, the the winds just blow with these politicians one way or the other, and how they stay and stay? In, I, I I mean, it also seems very interesting to me that a lot of them. Are, they're called to serve, but get to be very savvy investors at the same time. But that's a whole other, that's a whole another issue. But yeah, uh, so I mean, <laughs> I think one of the problems with our system now is the fact that we have too many career politicians. Now, some of them, I mean, and, and I actually don't mind someone who's been there a long time if they really are talented and could make a living another way if they had to. But a lot <laughs> of the people in office are not employable outside yes. <laughs> their job. I would say most Democratic politicians in the state fall into that category. Some Republicans, but certainly most Democrats. And what happens is they're so scared about their job. They put themselves and their job over the country. And they're so scared about losing their job, they'll worry about being primary from the far uh, left or the far right if you're a Republican. And, and they will, and, and therefore, uh, you know, they will select positions based solely on keeping their job. They're so terrified of having to go out and make a living. And I think <laughs> I think that's terrible because yeah. I the whole idea was that, you know, people uh, who were looked up to in the community, who had, you know, some achieve some level of achievement uh, in some walk of life would come to Washington for a period of time and then go back into society. But we've lost that. We have lost that. I, I've been quoting for some reason Eisenhower lately in a lot of the, the conversations that I have when he, he said, um, uh, farming looks mighty easy when, you're, when your uh, plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from a cornfield. Um, and it, it, applies right. to, it applies to so much uh, going on right now. Um, but when, right. I think when you're a de deputy attorney general, you're asked to give three big opinions like right off the bat. And they're all kind of inter interconnected. Uh, one was on uh, Pussy Comitatus. The other one was uh, informal rendition. Of course, we're all more aware of that now. And then customary international law. Um, and, uh, and you dive into these things and I love how you describe them in the book, but, uh, what was that like coming, uh, coming up with these opinions and then putting them, them up there to the, 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 the president of the United States to look at, uh, and then base decisions upon. Yeah, well, it was, uh, well, it was for a lawyer, there's especially a lawyer who's interested in the constitution. It, it's almost like an outer body experience. Yeah. I mean, it's really what it's all about. And, uh, uh, I, I relate in there the very within two weeks in office, I was asked the question like Delta Force is staging out of Puerto Rico uh, and uh, they're going to get somebody a, a drug a kingpin from a from a coast from the coast of another country. And would that be a violation of the Posse Comitatus statute? I said, no. And then I asked my deputy, <laughs> what's the possible? <laughs> oh, come on. You knew. But, I, but as I explained there, I had a general idea of what it was and, and my and turned out my instincts that it didn't apply it right. It doesn't apply outside the United States. So it, it sometimes it, it uh, you know, was pretty exciting. Uh, but the big advice I gave was that uh, President Bush didn't have to go back to Congress in order to uh, push Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait to launch desert storm. Now he chose to do that. And because I everyone felt that if he actually went up and tried to get it approval, he would get it. And so he did push for it. He got it. But that was an interesting uh, 
time as well. Oh yeah. I love how you describe what's going on. Obviously formative time for me when all that is going on. Um, but before that you get a little warm up to those, to, to that, that big decision right there. You have St. Croix that happens and you get to interpret the insurrection act of 1807. Um, and so you're looking into all that sort of thing. You have that, what savings and loan debacle you're, you're dealing with and, and juggling, uh, uh, you have so much going on. Um, and actually when it comes to, uh, Iraq invading Kuwait, I wanted to read something here on page 80. Um, I mean, there's so much, like I said, I could spend all day talking to you, but I want to be respectful of your time, but there's so much here. And uh, you say, I told President Bush, I thought there were two reasons he could act unilaterally. First, as commander in chief, the president can use military force to protect our allies and vital US interests. Throughout our history, there have been only five wars declared. Yet the president had used military force to protect American interests close to 200 times the Korean War being the situation most like what we faced in Kuwait. Here, the United Nations has, had effectively approved the use of force in Congress through a series of acts that approved and facilitated the deployment of a massive force to deal with Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. The question of how those troops were to be used was a matter for the commander-in-chief. When you lay this out, so and, there, and this is just one example of uh, how you lay out and break down some things that the when you listen to the media, they make it... Uh, extremely complicated sometimes. And then they throw, I mean, it's it, not just complicated, but throw in so many things that too many distractions and things that don't apply. But I love how you break down all of these issues that from the outside might seem overwhelming to, uh, to, to the average citizen that doesn't have a touch point in military or politics or law. Uh, and you break it down in a way that makes sense and is logical. And that's why I want every American to read this book because they'll be, they'll, they'll live a richer, better life for it. Um, and it, it, it is that important. I'm not, uh, yeah, it, it, that's incredible. Um, so I want to ask you about that. And I also want to ask you something else happened in there. The choice of David Souter for the Supreme Court. How did that come about? So, you know, I think um, it's one of these situations where, uh, you know, sometimes the unfamiliar can, can appear more unattractive than it mm. really is because the same names had been bandied about for the Supreme Court, including Ken Starr and um, uh, a woman named Edith Jones from Texas. And uh, some of the president's allies in the Senate, especially Warren Rudman, started pushing Souter from, from um, New Hampshire. And John Sununu was friends with Souter, and Sununu was the chief of staff. So they were sort of excited about Sununu. Um, and uh, Unfortunately, when when the meeting was held to pick somebody, um, I, I had recommended and 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 my deputy had recommended Edith Jones from Texas, and um, unfortunately, uh, the president and Dick Thornburg uh, opted for Souter, hoping he was sort of like a what they call a stealth candidate right. that he would be quietly <laughs> conservative, but he didn't have a record. But that. That turned out to be a forlorn hope. <laughs> yeah, that should be a lesson, maybe maybe to yeah. all of us, not just in in politics. Um, but you also talk about the book uh, in the in the book over and over again about the how passionate you are about protecting the American people. That is the bedrock of our society, the responsibility of our government to keep us us safe here. And uh, right. and, and you write this: the government's highest duty, I believed, is to protect its citizens from the predations of violent aggressors. That is the primary justification for setting up governments in the first place. A government that can't or won't spend sufficient resources to prevent habitual violent criminals from continuously preying on peaceful citizens breaches its most fundamental obligation. 
and you go on to talk about statistics in here and, and, and things that you saw and then what's, what's happened since. But when you look back at all those things that you did uh, in the 90s to combat violent crime, um, what do you feel about the situation that you see unfolding today, which is essentially uh, the exact opposite of all you did and, and stood for back then? How does that, what, and how do you continue to maybe have hope for the future when you see a, a segment of society and half of our politicians trying to undercut the things that are really the foundational to a society. Well, you know, it's sort of like what, you know, when, after the second world war, Churchill said, you know, the Western democracies went back to their old, you know, to their follies, the same, making the same mistakes that got them into the war in the first or brought about the war. And I sort of feel that way about crime in the, in the 60s, up, up until the Reagan-Bush administ uh, administration, crime was just going crazy because of the revolving door. And uh, we tightened everything up and led off to 22 years of consecutive uh, reductions in crime. We cut, cut crime in half in this country, biggest reduction ever, 22 straight years until 2014, and Obama declares war against the police, essentially. And Ferguson, and we had all that turmoil and crime started going back up. Trump came in, pushed it back down again. But with COVID and the summer of uh, George Floyd and, and what's happened since then, it's been going off the charts again. Murders are going, it will soon be back up at the level they were at their peak in 1992. So it's the same mistake. It's the revolving door. It's the uh, social justice DAs. First day, I mean, in my first speech back as attorney general, I went after those social justice DAs and I said, you know, crime is going to start going back up again. And it did just in the time I was there. I saw it happen. Um, so the states have to fix their system. Some states are just completely dysfunctional. New York, Illinois, places like that, completely dysfunctional. California, completely dysfunctional systems that just let these people out on the street. And um, so until we fix that, and, and I'm not, uh, you know, I think it will happen because people won't tolerate it much longer. It's one of these things that, you know, we just have to keep on relearning the lessons what I we should have learned 30, 40 years ago. I know. I'm, I'm, uh, it seems like we think in four-year election cycles, eight-year election cycles for the real deep thinkers among us, um, which is uh, a detriment to society as a whole, when we have all these lessons and all this history, we can go back and look at, take these lessons and apply them going forward as wisdom. It's just uh, disheartening. I try to stay hopeful, but it, 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 it is disheartening sometimes. Right. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about something else that was very formative um, in your, uh, your time in government, and that's the Talladega prison hostage situation and using right. FBI, HRT, lives are at stake. And, uh, and there you are um, overseeing this, which I think is the first use of uh, FBI, HRT in this kind of a capacity. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what, uh, what, was, what was that about? And uh, I mean, incredible situation. Well, of course, I, I, I became very close to the, the senior career people in the FBI, the deputy and the head of the criminal division there. Uh, I had tremendous respect for them. They were uh, really... Uh, top-notch professionals, uh, and I've always always gauged the FBI by the conduct of that group that I became close to in those years. And uh, I used to go down to Quantico, and I met with the HRT, and I made sure they were well-funded <laughs> nice. and so forth. Yep. And so I, I was very familiar with the HRT and its capabilities. And then when the Marielito Cubans, who were 
these were sociopaths. These were the worst of the worst that came over during the boat, the Mario Lido mm-hmm. boat lift. And uh, they had committed crimes in Cuba. They committed terrible crimes here. And they were going to be deported. And we had 120 of them. And they took over the prison and were holding 11 hostages initially. And I knew that we had no way to, uh, you know, negotiate with these. We went through this steps of hostage negotiators, but at the end, I knew we weren't going to give in. And so I told the HRT to start practicing and come up with a plan. And after nine days, we hadn't fed them and things were getting a little dicey. They started playing Russian roulette with, or they were just about to start playing Russian roulette with hostages. And I, you know, directed that the HRT go in. I reviewed the plans carefully and I made a few suggestions that turned out to be good ones. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so the HRT went in and they did a great job. And, and it was a great time for the FBI and for the HRT. It was the first time we'd used them. And it was over in, in 60 seconds. You know? so Amazing. Amazing. They had to blow their way into the prison. You know? So uh, incredible. And, and I loved how you guys are joking afterward, like most of us do after a mission and talk about who's going to play who in the movie. And I'll, right. uh, I'll let people <laughs> yeah. read who the, who you said was going to play you in here. I want to leave a couple of surprises for everybody. Okay. But I think that was, uh, that, that was fantastic. Um, but I also want to ask you about the tapper. You got some, uh, yeah. some information and some intelligence from a prisoner in there who wasn't part of that, uh, of that gang, that, that, that mob, but uh, you were getting some information from him. I can, in a tap code, a made up tap code. You figured it out. And uh, I want to ask you about him. And then I want to ask you about what happened to him afterward. Right. So one of the, you know, one of the problems was once we, once the HRT flooded into the the prison area, if they were distributed among the cells, Mm -hmm. the hostages, we never would have gotten them. So we were trying to make sure where they were and, and figure out where they were. And the big breakthrough came when this American, not a Cuban, who they had put back in his cell was signaling in through a tap code uh, to the FBI guys who were out on the perimeter. And they finally, after watching him for a long time, figured it out. And he was signaling INS room, the INS room. So we thought that meant that the hostages were all in the INS room. And that's where they turned out to be. And we confirmed that in a couple of different ways. But after it was all over, I, we found out he, he was a, a Native American, American Indian, and he was in for a long time. And, but he had, you know, a good record while in prison. So I uh, got him released. So. And uh, did you follow up with him later, years later? No, I never, I never connected with him. Interesting. But. I'd be curious to see what, uh, yeah. you know, where, where he ended up. Um, uh, but it should be a lesson to everyone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, good things can happen. You know? right. <laughs> it could happen. And I wanted right. to read something else here because it's uh, about Pan Am 103. It's something that obviously impacted you um, uh, during your time in, in government, personally, as well as professionally. And, and me too, as a, as a, a young person that has my eyes focused on the military and, and counterterrorism operations and, and that sort of a thing. Um, and I, every year I do, uh, I write up something on my social channels and talk about what happened and, and the, the status of where things are. But um, you're right here. On the evening of December 21st, 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 took off from London's Heathrow Airport bound for New York City. As it flew 31,000 feet above Lockerbie, Scotland at 7.03 p.m. local time, the massive Boeing 747 plane, known as a clipper made of the seas, blew apart. The plane and its passengers plunged to the ground for 36 seconds. 
Those who weren't killed immediately by the blast likely lost consciousness due to the lack of oxygen. Some, however, may have revived at 15,000 feet so they could witness the final moments of their fall. It appeared, based on some of the bodies recovered, that some victims had prepared for their deaths by clutch, clutching crucifixes. One woman had held her baby tight. The explosion killed all 259 people on board, 243 passengers, and 16 crew members, including 190 Americans, many of whom were students heading home for the holidays. Countless pieces were scattered across 840 square miles, nearly the entire width of Scotland. Falling debris claimed the lives of 11 Lockerbie residents on the ground. The Lockerbie bombing remains the deadliest single terrorist attack in the history of the United Kingdom. It was, until 9-11, also the deadliest attack on the United States. Whew. Man. Yep. Did you ever go up to uh, Syracuse University and, and, uh, and see what they do to commemorate that event where they put the chairs no, out I, there? I met... I met with some of the parents from Syracuse and as recently as uh, my last time as attorney general. So mm -hmm. 30 years later, but I haven't been up to Syracuse. Yeah. They do a, a, yeah. as you know, they do a, a memorial every year where they put the, the seats right. there and have all the, the yep. students. And it's, uh, I mean, I've only seen pictures that, that, but it's in, uh, incredibly moving and um, obviously impactful to, to a whole generation. Um, but uh, what happened in the aftermath of that event? There was so much that went on as far as uh, legal, uh, who has jurisdictions to do what, uh, Scotland, United Kingdom, United States, and how prosecutions were going to be handled and that whole investigation. It's an incredible investigation um, right. when you, when you uh, dive into it. But um, uh, you were involved from the second, from, uh, you were involved in 30-some years of, uh, right. of looking at this situation. So this raises a, a basic question I'm sure you're uh, focused on too, given your background, which is uh, we, the United States uh, took the time and the energy to develop the highest level of proof that we can beyond a reasonable doubt as to who was responsible. And we tracked it back to the uh, Libyan intelligence service, but that took two and a half years or so. So there we are, some time has passed since the attack, what do we do? And I felt that that we had to respond directly and militarily, you know, and at a, at a uh, NSC meeting, I argued for leveling the Libyan intelligence service and taking out some military targets and maybe even Gaddafi, because I said, it's very important we set the principle that if you do this to the United, and remember, this was the biggest terrorist attack on the U.S., when you do, if a, if a government does this, they will be taken, taken out, period. And we just had to establish that. Unfortunately, we, we went down the sanctions route and the sanctions didn't get us anywhere. And, and uh, later, Qaddafi got what was coming to him from a different source. But still, I felt we had missed an opportunity to establish very clear deterrence of these kinds of state-sponsored terrorism and so I was very frustrated by that. I also was frustrated because by the time we, the idea was, okay, we're going to get these guys and try them. And I said, that's not the game. I mean, these guys, these, these guys were doing it for someone else, you know, and, and bringing them to prosecute isn't really getting justice. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the, the Scots insisted on trying them uh, and they will not. Uh, impose the death penalty over there. And then they only convicted one and then they let him go when, when he had cancer. Uh, 
so I was I was not impressed with the outcome of that, the whole Pan Am 103 thing. But, but the second time I was attorney general, we had located the bomber, the guy who actually made the bomb. And uh, he is in Libya. And we indicted him. And uh, I was hoping that he would either win re-election, and I knew that uh, the Republican administration would get him. Mm. Uh, that is, the Libyans would give him to us. But I, I don't see any sign the Biden administration has followed up on that. Yeah. And in, it was uh, two days before you left the department, you announced those those charges. And uh, yeah. I mean, it, things come full full circle like that. Uh, but once yeah. again, it's still going on. As you as you said, it's not uh, it's not over all these all these years later. Yeah. And I want to ask you about the military tribunal of eight Nazi saboteurs in World War II that you uh, yeah. that you pointed to and went back to. That's a, that's a time when we did not mess around with uh, national security, um, right? And uh, can you describe that? Yeah. So uh, while the Pan, early on in the Pan Am one hundred three thing, while we were still investigating, uh, I was out in the hall one day, and I had seen it before, but I just sort of focused on it, and there was a plaque right outside my office saying that in this room, uh, eight Nazi saboteurs were, were tried uh, for uh, war crimes and were uh, convicted and later executed. It was like within a month or two. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, th- I thought about, oh, that's interesting. So I went back and researched it and uh, I researched the, they were tried before a military tribunal. They were uh, in the German military, they put on civilian clothes, landed, and they were going to carry out sabotage. Not all of them were executed. I think there might, uh, yeah, several of them had had turned the others in and they were spared. But uh, the point is that uh, when people are committing war crimes, which terrorists do, they are, they're engaged in armed hostilities, they wage it, not according to the rules of war, and they deliberately kill civilians. Uh, that's a war crime, and uh, they should be tried by a military tribunal. And after World War II, I mean, some people can go on YouTube and see some of the videos. We didn't mess around. I mean, we tried the war criminals, and they were executed. And this all happened in a relatively short period of time. And I'm disgusted by the fact that, you know, so many years after uh, 9-11, Sheikh Mohammed, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is still, uh, you know, enjoying the hospitality of American yeah. prison system. We haven't even brought him to trial. It's pathetic. And I have to criticize the military part here uh, because I, I don't know what's wrong with their uh, judge advocate uh, system and, and the judge system there, but they don't seem capable of meeting out justice. And as a result, we're the only country that can't take prison, doesn't take prisoners. We can't take prisoners because we don't know what to do with them. Are they in the criminal justice process or are they military prisoners, which they should be military? And uh, the courts have screwed it up. The military doesn't know what to do. It, it's a mess, and in people, my opinion. And people aren't even aware of it anymore. If you talk to someone, right. they're like, who's still in, we're still in prison, they're still in Guantanamo, haven't been tried. What's going on? How many years has this been? It's at, you know, 20, 20, over 20 years now, over two decades. Right. Um, and right. we have right. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and I think four conspirators that are, that are attached to the actual plot that are still down there just waiting, waiting for what? Uh, Right. Uh, I don't know what, when, what is it that happened between the end of world war two, between 
two months of administering justice to now two decades plus where probably it's just going to be indefinite. Who knows? Um, right. what, what happened during the loss that time? Of will. Yeah. The loss of will. Uh, you know, as I say in there, the greatest generation, the world, the generation that fought World War II did not mess around when it came to defending the country. No, they, <laughs> they did not. They did not. Uh, I mean, there, there's so much great there. I mean, you talk about the Rodney King riots in here, uh, the yeah. discussions that went on there about using the military and the National Guard and everything that happened around that. Um, and I wanted to ask you about weaponization of the news. Uh, and really the media becoming a propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. And you saw that in 1992 uh, with with Bush and the reelection and uh, Iraq gate. And it always irks me when everything's a gate. Uh, it just seems like lazy yeah. on the part of our, our media, right. not anyway. But uh, yeah. you have the economy and how it was uh, the exact opposite of what was happening was reported. And then as soon as that election is over, it shifts on a dime. Um, and uh, just the Bush's reelection, the news media's part in it. And I love how you say this. You say, the truth never caught up to the false narrative. I think that's a very powerful statement. Right. And that's what they, you know, they take advantage of that. They count on that. And, and uh, that makes the corruption of the media so much, uh, you know, it has such an impact on our political system and the health of our country. But even... Back then, and I was talking the election in '92. They brought they brought Bush down. Bush was at 89 percent approval in in 19 months before the election, and it took them 19 months to bring him down. And they and I go over the different mm-hmm. tools they used to do that. Um, and but things have even gotten worse since then. They were biased there, but now they. Now I think a lot of the journalists, not all of them, but a lot of the journalists see themselves as revolutionaries. They're, they are they are in the cause of social upheaval and overthrowing the system. And uh, they also believe less today than they used to that maybe the, maybe there is some un- underlying objective truth. They, they just think everything's a narrative. There's no such thing as objective truth, that everyone has their own truth. And that's just how I choose to interpret these events. And my narrative is as good as anyone else's narrative. And so they're not reporting events or objective facts. They are telling a story. And when something happens, that story's already written. The narrative's written uh, by the media. And uh, so... It's pulling the American people away from any kind of grounding in the truth of you know, what's happening. And so, I mean, one of the biggest examples of that was the summer of 2020, where you had these extremely vicious over-the-top attacks by Antifa-type groups and with it using those black bloc tactics and so forth all around the country. But you never, the American people were never informed of that. There was no video out there. There's no reporting of it. Uh, just Fox was the only one reporting it. But they basically took a, a major national event that was underway for weeks where well over a thousand police officers were were injured, yeah. many with concussions. And that was just a non-fact. I mean, that was just not even presented. That's how dangerous this is. It is. You do such a good job of laying this out in here so logically. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the time, but I was going to ask you about Iran-Contra, but I'll let people read about that because I've talked about it uh, quite, a, quite a bit. I weave it into, the, into, the, into my narratives. Of the, and, and I love how you use narrative 
in italics in here because you're right. It has that, that word used to be associated with what I do, which is write fiction. Now right. you hear it all the time on the actual news. And I talk about controlling right. the narrative. The narrative. Well, yeah. That's what I do when I make things up and sit on my computer. And now they're just right. blatantly saying narrative. It's oh, every day you hear it on the news. And I love how you, you right. call that out in here. Um, you talk about Lawrence Walsh and the October surprise. I do want to ask you though, about how it took those six years of him investigating, using taxpayer dollars uh, in Iran-Contra to file re-indictments against these people involved in that uh, that time, that money, and then of releasing the uh, the re-indictment on essentially the eve of a presidential election for all practical purposes for his October surprise, right. and how much power one person can have there as an independent counsel, and I want to get your thoughts on that. Right. I mean, I was always against the independent counsel, but he was the textbook example of prosecutorial abuse of power and the reason you can't have independent counsels who's real really are just set up to go after one person and you know have unlimited budget limited time to go after just one person and, and try to find something wrong that that person has done and uh it's a tremendous abuse and as a result of, of that abuse uh, the republicans blocked the reauthorization of uh the independent counsel statute mm -hmm. and something I'm, it's not in the book actually, but uh, the Bernie Nussbaum came over from the Clinton administration during the transition. And I said, Bernie, I, I, my advice to you is you do not resurrect the independent counsel statute as a Republican. Uh, I, I said, uh, as a, yeah, as a Republican, I'd love to see you live under it, but as an American, it's not good for our system. And he said, oh, no, we're going to have the most ethical administration in history. And then, of course, they had to live under Ken Starr. Mm -hmm. And so when it came up again, there was bipartisan consensus, no more independent counsel set up by statute. That, and, and right now, special counsels uh, are supervised by the attorney general. Yeah. Uh, and there's yeah. so much in here. I know we have limited time. I do want to ask you also about the succession of pledges you made to your wife, because I do the same thing. Uh, <laughs> I say, Hey, just after I finish this next book, we'll take a vacation. Right. Or, I just yeah. got to get yeah. through this next thing. And I say that over and over again. And I said it during the time of the military. And then I say it now today as an author, but uh, I mean, are you finally going to keep that pledge uh, to, to take a breath uh, now that you've finished oh. this, this book, maybe? Yeah. Well, in, in and I think in a couple of weeks, I'll be 72 and it's time for me to keep that pledge. <laughs> <laughs> but starting when we first got married, you know, I was going to law school at night and, and working and she was going to school at night and working. And it was always like, when we get over this, we'll, and it was just one promise after the other, every time I took a new job or, or had some new challenge. And uh, I think it's finally time for me to to uh, honor that. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it. It's like just after this deployment, just one more deployment. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's how it goes. My wife's been a trooper. Yeah. So it's been 22 years and I, uh, I, yeah. I'm very, very fortunate. Um, and you talk in the book, you talk about uh, when you come back to, to government and you talk about, well, first you talk about your time in the private sector. And that was fascinating. The intellectual feast. I love that, that term that you use there talking yeah. about your time, telecommunications and, and at a really at a, at a time where things are shifting. I mean, seismic shifts in how we communicate. And right. think. And, um, but you talk about China, you talk about Iran, North Korea, drug cartels, war on cops, opioid epidemic, all that is in the book. And you do take, uh, you, you talk about the goal of not, 
people confuse liberals and leftists, um, and it's become kind of intertwined and people don't spend enough time in the pages of books and history to really learn the differences in these terms. And I've always said precision in language reflects precision in thought. And uh, you're very precise in your language, um, whether you're, you're speaking, giving a speech or you're writing an opinion or you're or in this in this book. And I think that is incredibly important. We've lost that in the, uh, the age of 15 second TikTok videos and however many characters you can put in a tweet. Um, right. But um, you talk about the, the left's goal to tear down and remake American society. And you, t- you write, our politics was less like a disagreement within a family and more like a blood feud between two clans. And the way you describe some of this here in the, in the book, um, you say, I would not call today's progressives liberals. The leftward shift of the Democratic Party is not just an incremental step in a more liberal direction along a continuum of liberal democratic ideas. It is a break with the liberal democratic tradition. Radical progressivism, messianic premises is totalizing ambitions to control all aspects of life. It's need to tear down society's existing belief systems and institutions, um, uh, free and open debate. All are alien to the values of liberal democracy. Um, Liberal democratic ideas, strict limits on government power, individual rights, press freedoms, religious liberty were framed within this great Anglo-American political tradition and our life's blood of our republic. I mean, there's so much here that is so valuable uh, to every citizen, but in particular, I think those coming up junior high, high school, college, just entering the workforce, those who are going to be this next generation of decision makers, um, I just can't recommend this enough. I mean, it was really... Uh, the way you lay it out was um, uh, like a breath of fresh air. And I sincerely appreciate you. you writing this. I think you've done a great service to the nation. I mean, obviously you've spent a life essentially in service to the nation. Um, and this book is, uh, it'll, be, yeah, it'll be around forever and it'll influence uh, multiple generations to come. So I, I thank you for, for writing it. Um, but I want to ask you one more thing here. You said Abe Greenwald has characterized the movement as Maoist. It isn't concerned only with what you say and do. It's concerned with what you think. And in the age of social media, I think uh, obviously there are more tools at uh, the left's disposal to be able to influence those behaviors and thoughts. Right, it's a totalitarian movement, you know, and you know, basically there are two varieties of Western thought. One, one reached its zenith under the American and, and British uh, system of liberal democracy. And the other one sort of has its roots in the French Revolution and the guillotine and totalitarianism. Uh, and it's gone through various different manifestations from the right and left of totalitarian thinking. And I think it's becoming clear to everyone that what we're dealing with now is not a movement within the liberal democratic tradition who defend the process we have for reaching collective decisions through debate, through voting, through you know the marketplace of ideas and so forth, uh, but really want you know wants to tear down the system and. Uh, What's happening in our schools, the indoctrination, the changing of language, uh, it's all part of trying to control what people think, uh, their intolerance for traditional religion and so forth. So uh, it's, it's something completely different than what, the, what, what liberalism was traditionally. And I see, you know, I do think that, I, I do hold out hope. I, I, I feel that what's, if I could just take a minute. Yeah. Is, 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 oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, 
you know, I think what's happening now is like the 60s and 70s. Democrats driven by Vietnam or because of Vietnam moved sharp left in the 60s and 70s. And then they tried to patch up their, the differences within their own party. Remember, they had the violent uh, convention in 68 oh, yeah. and so forth. They tried to patch it up by bringing in Jimmy Carter, who was like an empty vessel. Everyone could see him what, see in him what they wanted to see. Mm. I see that being replayed here. There's no question that what's changed in our political system is not the conservatives becoming more conservative or, or, or reactionary. Uh, empirically, uh, and, and I point to the, uh, the left-wing uh, social scientist who tackles about the fact that the Democrats have moved far more to the left. And uh, so I think what's happening now is laying the groundwork for another uh, political coalition to come in and the way it did with Reagan and have a decisive political victory. Um, and, and I think that's what it will take. I, you know, I think to make America great again takes more than one term. And it takes some construction, not just hitting at the, at the left. And it takes unifying everybody in a coalition, the Republican Party, and some of the classical liberals who are disgusted by what they see going on. And that's the way I think eventually we'll lay the groundwork for uh, a decisive political victory that, and, and give us some time in office where we can make America great again. I, mean, I try to remain hopeful when, I, when my wife and I sit down on the couch at the end of the night and, and uh, get the kids to bed and have a glass of wine. It's, uh, sometimes it's difficult with everything going yeah. on. Um, but uh, I mean, you talk about in the book, you talk about Comey and Michael Flynn and the FBI and false statements and the weapon at lawfare, essentially, um, opioid academic. And I want to ask you about that quickly, about lobbyists and politicians and think tanks and how that works in, in Washington, D.C. When we talk about the opioid de- epidemic in particular, but it can, it can be uh, a host of other things from, from big tech to uh, maybe military industrial complex as well. But um, when we talk about those lobbyists and the influence they have and politicians and think tanks and then people that uh, aren't uh, aren't voted upon to get into these positions, but they are put into these positions as bureaucrats and they, they move around between staffs, between think tanks, lobbying positions and firms. Um, is that just the nature of the beast and it's something we have to deal with or is that something that could, will change in the future? Or what, what do you, how do you view that when you look at that, uh, that ecosystem? Well, you know, I still think the, I do think some degree of that is inevitable mm-hmm. because as long as government, big government is trying to directly regulate businesses and so forth, that, you know, they should have a right to at least participate in that uh, debate and also bring some, um, you know, facts before the legislature because frequently legislature is moving, is, is trying to do so much yeah. that they really don't have time to drill down and they need some support. But I think it ultimately comes back to the type of person who we are electing in Congress and whether they have they should have the backbone to stand up, stand up against lobbyists. But if you view this as something you're going to be doing for 30 or 40 years, you know, you're you're going to you're going to bend over for the donors. You're you know, you're going to take positions based on your own longevity rather than on principle. Uh, and the national interest. And so uh, I ultimately, 
put the blame really on the office holders. Yeah, hey, you know, personal responsibility isn't that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> take responsibility for your decisions. Don't yeah. blame them on the lobbyists. How about yeah. that? And uh, quickly before we we go, I, I sincerely appreciate all your time. I wanted to ask you about that decision to accept a position as attorney general once again. I mean, you had already served your nation. You had a, a, a run in the private sector. There was no reason other than an obligation to serve for you to step back into that line of fire, and yet you did it. You did it anyway for all of us. And what was that? Uh, what was that uh, conversation with your with your family like? And what was that uh, conversation like internally? Well, initially, my you know, I was not for it. I didn't <laughs> want to do it. Uh, if you if I had to write a script of how my life would be when I was sixty nine and seventy, <laughs> I was living. I was living it, and uh, I knew it would blow it all up. And I knew there was a tremendous hatred for Trump, and anyone who did this would be scorched. But and my family was, for that reason, opposed to it. But as time went by, you know, I think they came to the conclusion, I came to the conclusion that, you know, someone had to go in and, and run the Department of Justice. And I was in a unique position in that I had a lot of support uh, in the Senate. I, I was probably going to get confirmed. I, I would know what I was doing at Justice, at least better than someone who didn't have my experience. And most important that I was independent in the sense that I didn't need a job. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't looking to cash, you know, to, to cash in on this and get some job down the in the future. Uh, so I could afford to do what I thought was right and just, you know, the hell with the consequences. And uh, for that reason, uh, I was finally persuaded that, that if the president asked me, I would do it. And he did ask me and I did it. So oh. I felt it was important to stabilize the uh, Department of Justice and the FBI. They were under tremendous attack. I also felt that I was very skeptical of Russiagate and I thought it was being used to hobble Trump and to perhaps drive him from office. And I didn't feel he was getting is due as president. I mean, even before he was sworn in, this idea of the resistance mm -hmm. is completely unacceptable in our system. And I felt he was, you know, for he, he brought a lot of problems on himself, but I think he was more sinned against than sinning. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm proud, frankly, that uh, I, I felt that by going in and doing the right thing, uh, he had a chance uh, to perhaps win re-election. Yeah, in the book, talking about Russiagate, talking about uh, uh, COVID, talking about the summer of 2020, all those things are in here. Talking about the election results, and I know you've been asked about that ad nauseum, um, so people can read that in in the book. It's it's fascinating, and uh, I love your honest assessment of everything that you uh, have been involved in over these years. But if you have a couple more minutes, I did want to ask you about China. Sure. So having studied it for so long, um, and you write, by far the greatest challenge facing the United States is the national security arena today is the ra rapid rise of communist China as an aggressive competitor. Um, and when you think of China today, or you think of China when you first came, entered, entered government, and where it is today and where we are uh, in relation to it, what are your thoughts? Well, it's day and night. They've had the patience and the industriousness to just have a steady, not, you know, they've had a few little side trips like the uh, Cultural Revolution, but in, in recent decades, they've just been uh, uh, steadily gaining ground on us and in some areas even uh, getting in front of us. 
the problem is not just military and strategic, it's also technological. Our power, uh, our power to defend ourselves, to defend our allies, to provide security to our people, but also economic prosperity and opportunity for our citizens, generation after generation, has come from our, our technological leadership since the 19th century, since the late 1800s. We've been, we've been it. We've been the leader in the world. And we could lose that to the Chinese. They have a full court press, all elements of their society, government and citizens, are focused on certain areas of technology that will allow them to dominate the future. And we cannot, we don't have that kind of regimented society. We have to rely on people voluntarily doing things. We have to rely on companies working with the government. We have to rely on academia helping uh, on national security issues. And in the past, we've had that happen in World War II and in the Cold War. But now we don't see that same patriotism at work. Companies are not as willing to help. Academe is not willing to help. And meanwhile, the Chinese are mobilizing their whole society and stealing our technology. Because they are so regimented, they don't have the innovation. We have the innovation, but we can't mobilize as easily. They're stealing our innovation and mobilizing. And uh, it's, it's a very dangerous situation. When we talk about China, what made in China 2025, and you see some things that are uh, uh, basic to our national security, like thing, things that are in our phones and our, our computer chips and all the rest of it. And then some either pharmaceuticals or some of the things that we need to make those pharmaceuticals are made in China, made by our adversary. I mean, same thing we see with with with, with Russia and countries in Europe with energy and, and that sort of a thing. But uh, it, it, when you see businesses that in the past, let's say 50 years ago, uh, say hundred years ago, of course, uh, were, were American companies. And now not so much. You know, these things are all global in nature and, uh, beholden to yeah, shareholders, but, uh, not necessarily to, to the nation as a whole, not necessarily doing things, uh, that are in the best interest of their children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. Um, and I don't know what the fix is. Well, you know, one of the things we're seeing today with Ukraine is, uh, you know, the United States likes to use sanctions and sanctions have the advantage of not involving shooting wars and, and dead bodies. But uh, China is putting itself in the position where it could much more effectively impose sanctions on us than we can impose on them through the supply chain. I'm sure there are drugs right now that many millions of Americans are dependent on where the only source of it is China. Things like that. So we have to we have to uh, remember when we're talking about uh, developing our uh, industrial base that supply chain, having it here in the United States or secure with an ally we can really count on, uh, is is a critically important. And, and uh, I don't think we've, we've taken steps to to do that. I think the Biden administration is dropping the ball on that. We need we need to move very quickly on that. And, and, and you know, we have and this is something President Trump saw uh, and the Republican Party supports, which is we have the capacity to be energy independent. That gives us a tremendous manufacturing advantage, cheap, ready uh, power uh, to, to drive our industry. We could we could 
uh, dominate the world in any industry we care to get into. Uh, and uh, uh, we're not. We're not. It's so disheartening. For my, my fourth book, I put myself in the enemy's shoes, meaning um, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, a super empowered individual terrorist organization, and looked at our country through that lens. Uh, if I was them watching us on the field of battle for the last 20 years. Uh, but during that time, also COVID hit. That summer of civil unrest hit. Obviously, a very contentious uh, election cycle hits. And I thought, well, the enemy is not just looking at us and what we did on the battlefield. They're looking at our response to COVID. They're looking at our response to this summer of civil unrest. They're looking at this uh, divisive election cycle and how they can exploit it. And as an author, I sat here and thought, geez, you know what? If I was the enemy, I might just watch us for a little bit. We're doing a pretty good job of destroying ourselves right now. And of course, I had to figure out my way around that because I need to write a story that has them take action. But my my honest assessment was they can just take a breath, essentially, and watch us destroy ourselves, which was 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 extremely disheartening. Um, but I want, also wanted to ask you about Afghanistan. So when you saw last August and you watched what was happening, you saw the lead up to Afghanistan. You saw the provinces starting to to fall and and close in on the on the capital there. Um, what were your thoughts when you saw that? And then when you saw 13 Americans coming home in coffins, um, uh, how did you watch that play out? What did, that, what did you think when you saw all that transpire? I was disgusted by it. I, you know, I, as I sort of lay out in the book, you know, we, we probably took a wrong trip. I think we, we had to move into Afghanistan when we did. The CIA did a, a good program there to overthrow uh, the Taliban. Um, but I think we trying to turn Afghanistan into a mini version of the United States with a national army where we take all the warlords troops and sort of try to meld them into a, a national army. So there's sort of like a little United States, uh, was probably a mistake. Um, I think our, and I, and I also felt that leaving Afghanistan completely was not the right thing to do. I disagreed with president Trump on that. I felt that uh, we should keep some presence, uh, which together with NATO, because they were willing to kick in 7,000 troops. And we, you know, our concept was to have 5,000, they have 12,000 troops and keep it there to protect certain American installations and support our friends there. But um, as I say in the book, I, I've often wondered whether a better way of dealing with Afghanistan was to be the biggest, baddest warlord in the country, operating out of Bagram in union with the Northern Alliance uh, warlords and some of the Pashtun warlords who were anti-Taliban. And basically, the mission would simply have been prevent the Taliban or ISIS or Al-Qaeda from getting a foothold there from which they could launch operations and turn into a safe haven. And that way we would have been using their system Mm -hmm. uh, rather than trying to recreate the whole country, which I think culturally and other things just was a mission impossible, perhaps. I'd be interested. What what, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think we we fell prey to imperial hubris over and over again over that 20 year time period. And at the beginning, we didn't go back and look at the, or we took through the wrong lessons from the Soviet experience from 79 to 89. We certainly looked at it, probably drew the, drew the wrong lessons. We neglected to go back and look at the three British incursions in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Didn't even have to go back to Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great, but uh, certainly 
our experience after a few years, we could have started to take lessons and apply them going forward as wisdom. We made some key errors right off the bat. Um, the main one that we didn't lock down Tora Bora. There were CIA, as you know, there were right. about a hundred special operators and CIA people on the ground right there with some uh, warlords and those factions mm -hmm. and asked for reinforcements, but were, were denied, I think, because we were afraid of putting too many troops in there like the Soviets did and having it turn into what it eventually became. Um, so <laughs> right. it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult. And then the SEAL teams, we have something we say, don't rush to your death. Uh, meaning if you don't understand the situation, don't just run right in there and get shot up by somebody with a PKM sandbagged in the corner waiting right. for you. Um, and it seems like we had 20 years to prepare for this eventuality of leaving. And that's how we did it. We took the, the lessons of those 20 years and we rushed to our death at the end. And we put young American right. men and women in a tactically disadvantageous position rather than holding Bagram. And if we're leaving, at least leaving from a tactically advantageous position. Right. Um, that's why so many people were upset with it that had no touch points with military history or tactics or any, you didn't need to, you could apply common sense. Like Carl von Koschwitz said, the most, right. <laughs> the most important attribute of a battlefield leader is common sense. And it seems like right. we lack that. And then we also, what is even more disheartening is that it's not talked about in the media anymore. It's just like it never happened um, for the most part. And our senior level leaders who were responsible for that were not held accountable. And it seems like George Marshall, we all know him as the Marshall Plan, World War II, but really in the lead up to World War II and during World War II, he fired people who did not measure up and then got all those generals and admirals in positions, all those names we know today, he got them right. into those positions because the person before them wasn't doing the job. And so he would fire them and get people in place. We held people accountable. But then after World War II, things started to shift. And I don't know exactly why we did change. It became shifted from the War Department to the Department of Defense. Uh, once again, precision in language, precision in thought. Um, but over time, we neglected to, held our senior, to hold our senior level leaders accountable. And I'm not exactly sure why it's a societal shift, um, but we see it today and we continue to see people fail forward, fail upward, which is uh, disheartening to that tactical level, E1, E2, that sergeant down there, um, those people who are put in the position by people who aren't going to be standing that gate guard duty um, in a tactically disadvantageous position. Right. So right. it's tough. And then it seems like we took 20 years to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. And that's hard to right. take. That's hard to take. It is hard. Well. To take. Yeah. 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 I, you know, and so I don't know. I, I agree with everything you said. And as he's, it, it, and once you decided you are going to pull out, as you say, just common sense tells you how to pull out. Uh, and, and we didn't. It was just a circus, uh, inexcusable. And it, uh, it was just a uh, horrible coda to a, a terrible uh, waste over that time. But I still believe we were right in going in oh, yeah. the first place. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah they, we had an opportunity there in December of 2001. And uh, so those senior level leaders, I think they, they didn't take the lessons from the pages of history that they could have applied. Uh, and if mm -hmm. we did that, and I say we, meaning tactical level operators, had made the same types of mistakes tactically on the battlefield, we would have been fired, sent home, never operated again. Yet at the senior level, you can make strategic mistakes and not get held accountable. Right. Those, and that does not yeah. go unnoticed. No, I agree with what you said about Marshall. He's a great American hero. You, when you just go back and you see people like Eisenhower and other uh, generals at his level, a lot of the guys who were leading divisions and armies and so forth, 
they were colonels and majors yeah. <laughs> when right. the war started. Yep. Well, how did they all of a sudden get to the? It's because he he picked the fighters. He knew who were the good generals who could fight a war. That's right. And uh, we did. That's right. And my hope is when it has it asked that question, it's a hard one to answer when you're talking, especially to a family of someone who who lost a a son, a daughter, uh, husband, wife, and um, brother, sister. Uh, was it worth it? You get that question. Was it worth it? And uh, it's a tough one to answer. Um, but the way I frame it or the way I look at it is that it's our responsibility now to take those lessons, uh, to not squander that sacrifice and to apply those lessons going forward as wisdom. Um, and what does that mean? It means going into the pages of these history books. It means appreciating the sacrifice, not just of people from the last 20 years, but from the inception of this country up until today, uh, the sacrifices made by those people who put it all on the line. Some who never came home, some who did dealing with what was, wasn't even termed as traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress, missing arms, missing legs, not being able to walk. Um, they gave us these options and these opportunities and these freedoms. And now a segment of society is squandering that sacrifice. And uh, so I try yeah. to talk to my, my daughter and I went to Pearl Harbor for the, uh, the 80th anniversary commemoration events this last December. And uh, we volunteered over there with an organization called the Best Defense Foundation. And so she's 16 and she got to have a touch point with this generation who lied about their age to go and fight in World War II. And she got to sit down. We helped them in and out of their wheelchairs to the events, to their dinners, to their rooms. And uh, they loved her because they're talking to someone from this that new generation who's young and she's listening and it changed the course of her life. And I think that's because mm -hmm. there's an appreciation for that sacrifice. And it's not just being told by a parent, it's seeing it, it's sitting across the table, it's sharing a meal with these guys who sacrificed so much and then came home and got to work. And they didn't whine about it. And they built us into the, to the greatest country on the, on the face of the planet. Um, so right. I think it's an appreciation also. And we can do that by, that's why this book is so important. That is why, and I love, I love the title. And uh, in, in my <laughs> intro, I'm going to read why it's called uh, One Damn Thing After Another. But, uh, but that's why this is so, so important right here. It's for uh, people like my daughter at age 16 to read this book um, because there's an appreciation here that just is, a, it just weaves through everything that, you, that you've done. And uh, I sincerely, I sincerely appreciate this uh, more than I can express. Well, thank you, Jack. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. That. Absolutely. And before I let you go, I do want to ask you about Supreme Court leaked opinion um, because it, uh, it, it is timely and it, it, is, it is directly related to some of those things that, um, that you talked about uh, as far as President Bush and his reelection and the October surprise back in the 90s and uh, the, the weaponization of media and becoming a propaganda arm. Uh, I think there's, there's a direct line through to this leak uh, of this opinion. Uh, and it's that, it's that threat of violence, do what we say or else. Um, and not right. just the threat of violence, as we saw, we saw a Molotov cocktail over the weekend and uh, a, a host of other things when it comes to, to protests and, and, and riots and that sort of thing. But I wanted to ask you about that and what your, what your thoughts are. Well, this, to me, this is a perfect example of what I was talking about with, this is a group of revolutionaries who are outside the system who just wanna tear things yeah. down. And, and they, for them, the ends always justify the means. They will, do, they will destroy an institution, they will destroy every norm because they think that they have a monopoly on wisdom as to where to lead the country to our you know, earthly paradise, which is usually a socialistic paradise. And uh, so that's what they, you know, that's what's involved here. The secrecy of judicial deliberations, which is essential to the judicial process is to have 
you know, frank exchange among the justices. And they would even tear that down for political gain. And we're going to see over the summer how they try to exploit this, um, you know, for political reasons, because they realize that they're facing extinction <laughs> in the midterms yeah. potentially. Yep. Yeah. So we'll see. That'll be, we're in interesting times. I guess that's the best way to, the best way to say it. Yeah. Um, and, and really quick before I let you go, um, yeah, sure. why did you, uh, not want to be a judge or not follow the, not ever entertain, uh, the possibility of, uh, of becoming a judge at some point? Um, cause I think you would have and uh, I mean, you've done amazing things, obviously, and done so much for the nation. But uh, why not? Why did you not want to put on those robes? Because, you know, I like to have I like to have a mission and the tools to accomplish the mission myself. Mm. And the idea of sitting trying to if I felt something was right and thought it through the idea that I'd have to persuade, you know, some other judge to mm. judges to go along with me or else you know, they would have their way. That, that's just not attractive for me. I, I, and, and that's for the same reason. I, you know, during W's administration, the personnel office called me up and they asked me if I, you know, wanted to be the head of, of uh, a DNI. And I said, no, because that's a coordination job. You're working through other entities. Uh, and I said, there are only two agencies. They said, is there anything? I said, well, there are only two agencies. I, I really am attracted to one is justice and one is defense because in justice and in defense, your job is to deal with the bad guys and you're given the tools to do it. And that's all there is to it. And so uh, that's why I'd rather not be a judge. I, I just knew that I would be very frustrated. I like that. You're a fighter, not an arbiter. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> that is fantastic. And, uh, you know, for everybody who, uh, who, who wants to find out about uh, the, the 2020 election and relationship with Trump and all the rest of that, it's all in here. You open with it and, and finish with it. Um, but uh, that's all in here. And I want to encourage, I think that's going to draw a lot of people to this, but more valuable than that is everything else that you talk about throughout the course of this book. So um, I, I hope that people pick it up, even if they pick it up just because of the election and everything that was in the news about that, but they'll get so much more from it uh, than just what you talk about as far as that election goes. So um, so thank you so much for for writing this and being so open and honest in here. And it's, uh, like I said, it's fantastic. And I'm going to gift it to a, a host of people to include uh, my daughter here uh, as soon as we're done with this podcast. So uh, I want to thank you for all you've done for the for the nation and for for writing this book. And uh, I couldn't couldn't appreciate it more. Thank you, Jack. I really have enjoyed this, and someday we'll have to pick back up on. I it. hope so, and hopefully we can share a scotch at some point. I know uh, I know yeah, you're a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. That's great. Wonderful. Thank all you. All right, sir. Take care. Thank you for everything. The home buying experience can be a daunting one. Navy Federal Credit Union is here to help military members and their families tackle home ownership. They offer mortgage options with zero down payment, so you don't need to wait years to save. They offer mortgage options that don't require private mortgage insurance, so you'll save money each and every month. Members save $2,500 on average when they choose Navy Federal for their mortgage. With resources like Realty Plus, you can get an experienced real estate agent and Navy Federal is a top VA home lender. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Insured by NCUA, an equal housing lender. 
want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's coffee. Keep crushing. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they are always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation, they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right, I want to start with this because we recently moved and I was putting this on the wall. And this is something that Larry Vickers sent to me while I was still in the SEAL team. So uh, Larry, thank you mu so much for sending this all those years ago and for, for signing the back. It means a ton to me. And uh, thank you for all these years of friendship. And I hope we can get on the range together again soon. All right, what else is going on here? This right here, I wish I remembered the company, but it doesn't have any markings on it. But my friend Mike Camacho sent me this. And if you can see this right here, there it is. Okay, so you might be able to see cross tomahawks in there. So this is for ice cubes, and this is going to get filled with water and go in the freezer as soon as I'm done with this segment of the podcast. And uh, yeah, those will be in my whiskey glass later tonight. So Mike, thank you much for so much for thinking of me. This, this is awesome. Uh, and they're like perfect size. So that is just too cool. Uh, also motorcycles. Oh yeah. I think there's some riders out there. If you read the first novel, you will know that uh, James Reese and his wife go to Sturgis or he has a memory of them going to Sturgis. And that's something that I did with my wife while I was in the SEAL teams. And Sturgis is just beautiful. I understand why that rally has been held there year after year after year. And I hope I can get back there again soon. I've had a couple Harleys over the years, loved a fat boy that I used to have. And I'm so bummed. I don't have it anymore. I might need to, uh, get another one, but, uh, I have a couple of bikes now. One of those is that, uh, urban GT, um, uh, BMW. And that thing is pretty sick. You can go to my Instagram at Jack Carr USA and scroll down if you want to take a look at it, but this is a coffee table book about BMW motorcycles and, uh, uh, amazing history. And they have some sweet bikes out there. Um, yeah. Thank you for tuning into the danger close podcast an ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. One Damn Thing After Another by Bill Barr is out now, wherever you get your books. In the Blood, my next novel in the James Reese saga is also out now in hardcover ebook and audiobook. 
If you liked our conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Go to officialjackcar.com. That's the website or jackcarusa.com for the merch. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is sincerely appreciated. Take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.